0: Has has uh, been throwing that fastball about 93 to 95, has a curve that he'll use. That's good stuff. He just needs to put it together. Another pitcher who has rushed, cause of necessity. Now, A-Rod backs up Boston in, I don't know when it is, a week. They're going to get Tim Wakefield back. Now, if he's healthy, that would obviously really help. The pitch, high and tight, and the count, really too. Well, it would, because now they've said they've uh, designated their fifth starter for assignment, so there's nobody in that spot. I think the 27th is when Tim said that he's eligible to be activated. Now, A-Rod runs the count to and 3-2, and the Yankees are at least running up Lester's pitch count early. And here's the payoff inside ball four. And that's the problem with uh, Lester so far. I talked to the Red Sox. That's exactly uh, what it is that he has. He is already, as John said. Now he's up to 27 pitches here in the second inning, and there's nobody out. So no matter how many great pitches he pitches, you're not going to get a let the 22-year-old get more than 90, 100 pitches at most. Well, the Yankees have a runner on, and here is Robbie Cano.
1: Abrupt ending there to that musical background there from the uh, longest baseball match of nine innings. Baseball poetry there in lieu of the sports report for today. And there's something poetic about uh, any sport, I guess. Uh, The uh, poetry of movement and, of course, spring training is underway down south. So that's good news for folks who are sick of the winter. And there are plenty of them who are, to be sure. Well, uh, the potholes are getting bigger. The snow that came on Saturday night into Sunday uh, reminds us that we're still under the grip. The tenacious gripe, as Shakespeare might have said. And so uh, there's nothing to do but uh, buckle down and endure. And so we must. Oscars, of course, for last night. Uh, not too much to say about that. Um, didn't really see uh, very many of the films this year. And so I don't feel qualified to render much of an opinion. But nice to see Bill Murray uh, squeeze in his little... Uh, Uh, Acknowledgement of uh, the career and uh, the recent passing of Harold Ramis. Of course, Bill Murray worked with Harold Ramis on a trilogy of classic comedy films. Not that they're related to each other, but a cluster of three. And so, uh, Harold Ramis, great comic writer. We acknowledge him here as well on Gray Matters. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be doing the show Solo today. Again, while uh, Mr. Whaley uh, takes care of business. Well, I uh, don't have too much to say about the Oscars, although, of course, I encourage uh, you to stay tuned for a local film event that's coming up. The uh, first wave of the publicity for the Ann Arbor Film Festival has uh, hit the ground. That is the poster. This is exciting because this means we're getting close to the actual week of the festival. This year, 2014, we'll see the 52nd Ann Arbor Film Festival. Of course, most listeners to Grey Matters are aware that this is the uh, oldest independent uh, uh, film festival in North America. It's the oldest experimental film festival, I think, in the world. And it happens right here in our fair city. And for me personally, i got to say that uh, the Ann Arbor Film Festival and WCBN are two of the best reasons to live in this area. Uh, There's other great things here as well, of course. But uh, for me, uh, the week of film festival is uh, a cultural high-water mark uh, for the entire year. And so uh, March 25th, through the thirtieth, uh, at the Michigan Theater and other uh, spots around town, but primarily the Michigan Theater, uh, you can see some fabulous work: uh, documentary, animation, narrative, uh, experimental films, short films, feature-length films. Uh, they receive over twenty-five hundred submissions typically, and it all gets sort of whittled down. the The finest films, the most uh, interesting unusual and extraordinary films make the cut, and they make it into the festival. And as usual, I strongly recommend Opening Night. Um, I'm looking at the poster here. I'll have more time to uh, spend talking about this next week after I've reviewed each of the uh, program listings. But Got to give a big uh, thumbs-up to David Dinnell, the uh, artistic director of the festival. It's his job to assemble the films into programs. I think he does an exceptional job with that. Uh, In my view, the film festival in the last uh, five, six, seven years has been uh, as good as it's ever been, uh, maybe better. Um, The caliber of uh, submissions that they receive are quite high. And so there's... uh, Lots of good reasons why you should pencil that week in on your calendar as uh, something that simply must be attended at one point or another. So the 52nd Ann Arbor Film Festival coming your way at the end of this very month. Well, I mentioned last week that I didn't really have the time to go into some of the articles that I had wanted to share with you about what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia, and, of course, that situation has deteriorated in some ways since uh, we last spoke on Gray Matters. And so uh, I think it's still uh, something that we need to consider. Uh, Russia's misrepresentation in the press, for good and bad, is... uh, something that uh, has been recently written about in The Nation magazine. And this is by Stephen Cohen, who is writing in the March 3rd edition of The Nation. Stephen Cohen is a professor emeritus of Russian studies and politics at New York University and Princeton. His book, Soviet Fates and Lost Alternatives, which examines the new Cold War, is uh, currently available in paperback. And I'm going to begin with his article this week. It's called Distorting Russia, How the Media Misrepresents Putin, Sochi, and Ukraine. And he writes as follows. The degradation of mainstream American press coverage of Russia, a country still vital to U.S. national security, has been underway for many years. If the recent tsunami of shamefully unprofessional and politically inflammatory articles in leading newspapers and magazines, particularly about the Sochi Olympics, the Ukraine, and unfailingly President Vladimir Putin, is an indication, this media malpractice is now pervasive and the new norm. There are notable exceptions, but a general pattern has developed. Even in the venerable New York Times and Washington Post, past reports, editorials, and commentaries no longer adhere rigorously to traditional journalistic standards, often failing to provide essential facts and context, to make a clear distinction between reporting and analysis, or to require at least two different political or expert views on major developments, or even to publish opposing opinions on their op-ed pages. As a result, American media on Russia today are less objective, less balanced, more conformist, and scarcely less ideological than when they covered Soviet Russia during the Cold War. The history of this degradation is also clear. It began in the early 1990s following the end of the Soviet Union when the U.S. media adopted Washington's narrative that almost everything President Boris Yeltsin did was Quote, a transition from communism to democracy, close quote, and thus in America's best interests. This included his economic shock therapy and oligarchic looting of essential state assets, which destroyed tens of millions of Russian lives, armed destruction of a popularly elected parliament and imposition of a presidential constitution, which dealt a crippling blow to democratization and now empowers Putin. A brutal war in tiny Chechnya, which gave rise to terrorists in Russia's North Caucasus, rigging of his own reelection in 1996, and leaving behind, in 1999, his approval ratings in single digits, a disintegrating country laden with weapons of mass destruction. Indeed, almost, in, most American journalists still give the impression that Yeltsin was an ideal Russian leader. Since the early 2000s, the media have followed a different leader-centric narrative, also consistent with U.S. policy, that devalues multifaceted analysis for a relentless demonization of Putin with little regard for facts. Was any Soviet communist leader after Stalin ever so personally villainized? If Russia under Yeltsin was presented as having legitimate politics and national interests, we are now made to believe that Putin's Russia has none at all, at home or abroad, even on its own borders, as in Ukraine. Russia today has serious problems in many repugnant Kremlin po- policies, but anyone relying on mainstream American media will not uh, find there any of their origins or influences in Yeltsin's Russia or in provocative U.S. policies since the 1990s only in the autocrat Putin, who, however authoritarian, in reality lacks such power. Nor is he credited with stabilizing a disintegrating nuclear-armed country, assisting U.S. security pursuits from Afghanistan and Syria to Iran, or even with granting amnesty in December to more than 1,000 jailed prisoners, including mothers of young children. Not surprisingly, in January, the Wall Street Journal featured the widely discredited former president of Georgia, Mikhail Saakashvili, branding Putin's government as, quote, one of deceit, violence, and cynicism, close quote, with a Kremlin nerve center of the troubles that, uh, the Kremlin as the nerve center that, uh, of troubles that bedevil the West. But wanton Putin bashing is also the dominant narrative in centrist, liberal, and progressive media. From The Post, Times, The New Republic to CNN, MSNBC and HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, where Howard Dean, not previously known for his Russia expertise, recently declared to the panel's general approval, quote, Vladimir Putin is a thug. The media, therefore, eagerly await Putin's downfall due to his failing economy. Some of its indicators, though, are better than U.S. ones the valor of street protesters and other right-minded oppositionists whose policies are rarely examined, the defection of his electorate, his approval ratings actually remain around 65%, or some welcomed cataclysm. Evidently believing, as does the Times, for example, that Democrats and a much better future will succeed Putin, not zealous ultranationalists growing in the streets and corridors of power, U.S. commentators remain indifferent to what the hoped-for destabilization of his regime might actually mean in the world's largest nuclear country. For weeks, the toxic coverage has focused on the Sochi Olympics and the deepening crisis in the Ukraine. Even before the Games began, the Times declared the newly built complex "quote a Soviet-style dystopia and worn in a headline, Terrorism and Tension, Not Sports and Joy. On opening day, the paper found space for three anti-Putin articles and a lead editorial, a feat rivaled by the Post. Facts hardly mattered. Virtually every U.S. report insisted that a record 51 billion squandered by Putin on the Sochi Games proved they were corrupt. But as Ben Aris of Business New Europe has pointed out, as much as 44 billion of that 51 may have been spent to develop the infrastructure of the entire region investment the entire country needs and i'll just interrupt parenthetically here that for those who uh, condemned putin for using the olympics to uh, burnish his own image uh, that's just the way that works. Uh, you know, Nations uh, commit large quantities of dollars for uh, the, uh, securing the rights to stage the games. And it's typically seen as a feather in the cap of the local politicians who pull it off, organize it, and then stand to uh, reap the glories of the publicity. Look no further than uh, Utah's Mitt Romney who uh, was a big part of those Salt Lake City games. He certainly uh, tooted that horn. Uh, It was an accomplishment, something on his resume. So that's my parenthetical intrusion there. Uh, Everybody uh, exploits the Olympics uh, for political gain. Uh, That's nothing unique to Vladimir Putin. But now back to Stephen Cohen's uh, distorting Russia article. Overall, pre-Sochi coverage was even worse, exploiting the threat of terrorism so licentiously it seemed pornographic. The Post, long known among critical-minded Russia watchers as Pravda on the Potomac, exemplified the media ethos. A sports columnist and, uh, and an editorial page editor turned the Olympics into a contest of wills between the despised Putin thugocracy and terrorist insurgents. The two warring parties were so equated that readers might have wondered which to cheer for. If nothing else, American journalists gave terrorists an early victory, tainting Putin's games and frightening away many foreign spectators, including some relatives of the athletes. The Sochi games will soon pass, triumphantly or tragically. Unfortunately, they pass triumphantly. They're very entertaining. Everything went without a hitch. The athletes themselves spoke very highly of the experiences and the facilities, so well done, right? But the potentially fateful Ukrainian crisis will not. A new Cold War divide between West and East may now be unfolding, not in Berlin, but in the heart of Russia's historical civilization. The result could be a permanent confrontation fraught with instability and the threat of a hot war far worse than the one in Georgia in 2008. These dangers have been all but ignored in highly selective, partisan, and inflammatory U.S. media accounts, which portray the European Union's partnership proposal benignly as Ukraine's chance for democracy, prosperity, and escape from Russia, thwarted only by a bullying Putin and his cronies in Kiev. Not long ago, committed readers could count on the New York Review of Books for factually trustworthy alternative perspectives on important historical and contemporary subjects, but when it comes to the Russia and Ukraine item, the New York Review of Books has succumbed to the general media mania. In a January 21 blog post, Amy Knight, a regular contributor and inveterate Putin basher, warned the U.S. government against cooperating with the Kremlin on Sochi security, even suggesting that Putin's secret services might have had an interest in allowing or even facilitating such attacks, as killed or wounded dozens of Russians in Volgograd in December. Knight's innuendo prefigured a purported report... On Ukraine by Yale professor Timothy Snyder in the February 20th issue. Omissions of facts by journalists or scholars are no less an untruth than misstatements of fact. Snyder's article was full of both, which are widespread in the popular media, but these are in the esteemed New York Review of Books and by an acclaimed academic. Consider a few of Snyder's assertions. Quote, on paper, Ukraine is now a dictatorship, close quote. In fact, the paper legislation he's referring to hardly constituted dictatorship and in any event was soon repealed. Ukraine is in a state nearly the opposite of dictatorship, political chaos, uncontrolled by President Viktor uh, Yanukovych, the parliament, the police, or any other government institution. Quote, the parliamentary deputies have all but voted themselves out of existence, close quote. Again, Snyder is alluding to the nullified paper. Moreover, serious discussions have been underway in Kiev about reverting to provisions in the 2004 Constitution that would return substantial presidential powers to the legislature. Hardly the end of parliamentary checks on the presidential power, as Snyder claims. Next, uh, quote, uh, through remarkably large and peaceful public protests, Ukrainians have set a positive example for Europeans, close quote. This astonishing statement may have been true in November, but it now raises questions about the example Snyder is advocating. The occupation of government buildings in Kiev and in western Ukraine, the hurling of firebombs at police and other violent assaults on law enforcement officers, and the proliferation of anti Semitic slogans by a significant number of anti Yanukovych protesters, all documented and even televised, are not an example most readers would recommend to Europeans or Americans. Nor are they tolerated even if accompanied by episodes of police brutality in any Western democracy. Next, quote, representatives of a minor group of the Ukraine extreme right have taken credit for the violence. This obfuscation implies that apart from a minor group, the Ukrainian extreme right is part of the positive example being set. Many of its representatives have expressed hatred for Europe's anti traditional values, such as gay rights. Still more, Snyder continues, quote, something is fishy, Uh, close quote, strongly implying that the mob violence is actually being done by Russophone provocateurs on behalf of Yanukovych or Putin. As evidence, Snyder alludes to reports that the instigators spoke Russian, but millions of Ukrainians on both sides of their incipient civil war speak Russian. Snyder uh, reproduces yet another widespread media malpractice regarding Russia, the decline of editorial fact-checking. In a recent article in the International New York Times, he both inflates his assertions and tries to delete neo-fascist elements from his innocuous Ukrainian extreme right. Again, without any verified evidence, he warns of a Putin-backed armed intervention in Ukraine after the Olympics and characterizes reliable ports of Nazis and anti-Semites among street protesters as Russian propaganda. Perhaps the largest untruth promoted by Snyder and most U.S. media is the claim that, quote, Ukraine's future integration into Europe is yearned for throughout the country, close quote. But every informed observer knows from Ukraine's history, geography, languages, religions, culture, recent politics and opinion surveys, that the country is deeply divided as to whether it should join Europe or remain close politically and economically to Russia. There is not one Ukraine or one Ukrainian people, but at least two generally situated in its western and eastern regions. And by the way, I'll just inflate here, parenthet- insert uh, parenthetically here, the very name Ukraine is uh, related to the term the edge. krai, edge. And so it's the edge, it's the exterior. If they want to break away from Russia, they're going to have to change their name uh, because they won't be the edge anymore. They'll be their own thing. Will they be the edge, easternmost edge of Europe? Well, If there's time, we get to Jeffrey Summers and Michael Hudson's uh, Ukrainian Hangovers article. We'll see how uh, this uh, current uh, crisis uh, in uh, the Crimea is, in many ways, the culmination of U.S. and NATO policy since 1991. We may have to wait until next week for that, but uh, continuing here with uh, Cohen's material. Uh, Such factual distortions point to two flagrant omissions uh, by Snyder and other U.S. media accounts. The now exceedingly dangerous confrontation between the two Ukraines was not ignited, as the Times claims, by uh, Yanukovych's duplicitous negotiating or by Putin, but by the European Union's reckless ultimatum in November that the democratically elected president of a profoundly divided country choose between Europe and Russia. Putin's proposal for a tripartite arrangement, rarely if ever reported, was flatly rejected by U.S. and EU officials. But the most crucial media omission is Moscow's reasonable conviction that the struggle for Ukraine is yet another chapter in the West's ongoing U.S.-led march towards post-Soviet Russia, which began in the 1990s, and here we go on this, Uh, although we're not in Summer's article, uh, Cohen's touching on it as well, Uh, how can you not? This is the truth. This is the real context here that needs to be kept in mind. Um, The struggle for Ukraine is yet another chapter in the West's ongoing U.S.-led march towards post-Soviet Russia, which began in the 1990s with NATO's eastward expansion and continued with the U.S.-funded NGO political activities inside Russia, a U.S.-NATO military outpost in Georgia, and missile defense installations near Russia. Whether this is long-standing Washington-Brussels policy is wise or reckless, it, not Putin's December financial offer to save Ukraine's collapsing economy, is deceitful. The EU's civilizational proposal, for example, includes security policy provisions, almost never reported, that would apparently subordinate Ukraine to NATO. Any doubts about the Obama administration's real intentions in Ukraine should have been dispelled by the recently revealed taped conversations between a top State Department official, Victoria Newland, and the U.S. ambassador in Kiev. The media, predictably focused on the source of the leak and on Newland's verbal gaffe, in which apparently she said, F the EU, Uh, But the essential revelation was that high-level U.S. officials were plotting to midwife a new anti-Russian Ukrainian government by ousting or neutralizing its democratically elected president. That is a coup. Americans are left with a new edition of an old question. Has Washington's 20-year winner-take-all approach to post-Soviet Russia-shaped This degraded news coverage? Or is official policy shaped by the coverage? Did Senator John McCain stand in Kiev alongside the well-known leader of an extreme nationalist party because he was ill-informed by the media? Or have the media deleted this part of the story because of McCain's folly? And what of Barack Obama's decision to send only a low-level delegation, including retired gay athletes, to Sochi? In August, Putin virtually saved Obama's presidency by persuading Syrian President Bashar al-Assad to eliminate his chemical weapons. Putin then helped to facilitate Obama's heralded opening to Iran. Should not Obama himself have gone to Sochi, either out of gratitude to Putin or to stand with Russia's leader against international terrorists who have struck both of our countries? Did he not go because he was ensnared by his unwise Russia policies? or because the U.S. media misrepresented the varying reasons cited, the granting of asylum to Edward Snowden, the differences on the Middle East, infringements on gay rights in Russia and now Ukraine. Whatever the explanation, as Russian intellectuals say when faced with two bad alternatives, both are worst. And that is Stephen Cohen, Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies and Politics at New York University in Princeton, He's got a book called Soviet Fates and Lost Alternatives, and that is from the March 3rd edition of the Nation magazine. I'm still looking at that photo from the uh, February 20th uh, New York Times that uh, purports to be a photo of a Cossack whipping a woman uh, in the Pussy Riot uh, protest group as they sang in Sochi on Wednesday. Um, I haven't really uh, found anything conclusive uh, one way or the other about this, but I'll tell you, just from reading the body language of the photograph, I still believe this is a staged photograph, a theatrical photograph. Uh, The arm of the uh, purported Cossack uh, yielding the whip is down, and so that that whip will have landed. But the body language of the person uh, ostensibly being whipped is not the body language of someone who's being attacked by an unknown assailant uh, or being flogged by a law enforcement authority. It's the body language of someone who knows this is a staged uh, publicity stunt. And I still think the New York Times has been successfully pranked by the uh, clever gals of the Pussy Riot movement. Uh, So while I'm no fan of the Cossacks, uh, this article... In the Times, Cossacks with horsewhips attack members of Russian protest group, is a perfect example of what Stephen Cohen was just talking about: the willingness, the eagerness, to assume uh, the worst uh, without checking the facts, without really seeing what's going on. Um, that's no way to uh, educate uh, the American people uh, or to inform them. Uh, it looks like we have to do our own research or rely on actual experts not the journalists who claim to be. So uh, next week uh, we will probably continue on this topic. Uh, in the meantime, stay tuned to WCBN for all your listening pleasures. We've got a fine quality program of early blues coming your way next. It can be heard every Monday night here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Yazoo City Calling is next, so stay tuned for Weston and the good old blues uh-huh
2: <smart noise>